Last week, we completed the book of Ezra. We took a broad overview of chapters 7 through 10 to see what the larger story has to tell us. In chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, Zerubbabel led the captives out of Babylon to reestablish a Jewish remnant in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. In chapters 7 through 10, Ezra, the priest and scribe, led another smaller remnant back to Jerusalem in an attempt to establish a society based around the Torah, or the Law of Moses. Instead, Ezra learned that the people had been just as faithless as their ancestors, who had been taken exile by Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In a desperate attempt to revive the community, Ezra issued a mass divorce decree to cleanse the people of pagan worship. In the end, we established to some degree of certainty that God wasn't going to bring about forgiveness, a victory over the curse, and an established messianic kingdom based on the work of any mere man. When God would establish his new covenant, he would do it in his strength alone. In hindsight, we now look back at the cross and empty tomb as God's supreme and final victory over sin and death and the curse. He has begun to establish his kingdom through Jesus Christ and one day, and we pray one day very soon, he will bring his kingdom into its complete fruition when Jesus Christ returns. Until that day, Christians are keeping one ear open for the sound of that great trumpet that will call us all home. The book of Nehemiah begins 15 years after the book of Ezra ends. This is almost 100 years after the first captives came back to the promised land. And about 150 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the walls of the city were still in rubble. I've titled today's message, Meet Nehemiah. So let's do that. Would you read with me Nehemiah chapter 1? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, 
and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have in your grace, allowed us to complete Ezra and enter into the book of Nehemiah. And yet, our ears are still tuned for that trumpet call. We pray that if it is by your will that we would not complete the book of Nehemiah before you call us home. But if we do, help us to be faithful. Help us to be courageous. Help us not to live in fear. Help us to take your word as the final authority and not what media is trying to spin toward us. We thank you that your word is absolutely true and that we can trust it like we can trust nothing else. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What can we glean? I could have, I could have preached 10 different messages on this particular prayer, but I chose to do this. What can we glean about Nehemiah's character from this text. What was the man Nehemiah like? Ezra, I can relate to on some level. Nehemiah, although I don't relate to him in the same way, I admire him. And so I don't understand Nehemiah and how he thinks and how he goes about doing things, but I admire how he does. He's got exactly the correct character for what God needed done at this time. I cannot overestimate the importance of the question, what can we learn about Nehemiah's character? Over the centuries, as people have studied the book of Nehemiah, the same basic theme comes up, whether it's Jews or Christians, over and over again. That is this. Nehemiah was a great leader. There was something or perhaps many things about Nehemiah that caused him to ascend in rank and take his place among the greatest leaders in Israel's history. Few of us are called to be leaders of great nations or governors over large land holdings, but to some degree, each of us, as a believer, has been called to be a leader. Yeah, even you, Hattie. Some, 
of these leadership roles are obvious, such as being a mother or a father or a teacher or a business owner. Others are not so obvious, but possibly just as important. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to be moral leaders in society every day we step out of our homes and inside our homes for that matter. If men and women with strong moral convictions don't take moral leadership in society, who is going to do it? Politicians? We've seen how well that works out, especially lately. If students with strong moral convictions don't take moral leadership in classrooms and hallways, who's going to do it? Teachers? That's a little bit of a shot at Mike. You guys were supposed to giggle, but apparently it wasn't funny. <laughs> we have some wonderful teachers that take strong moral leadership. But as a whole, teachers have abandoned their professionalism for unionism. And if the students don't do it, very few teachers will. Each person in this room can learn something from the character and actions of Nehemiah that can encourage us to take up the difficulties that face us and help other people and even our society as a whole. Beyond that even, if you are a believer in here today, God, through his Holy Spirit, can empower you to accomplish things you haven't even begun to imagine as you faithfully submit yourself to his will. So let's look at some of the characteristics of Nehemiah. The first one is that Nehemiah cared about what God cared about. Nehemiah may have been living in Susa, the capital city of Persia, but his heart yearned for a city that was 760 miles to the west. The city, Jerusalem, has many names in scripture. It was called Moriah by Abraham when God stopped him from sacrificing his son, Isaac. This name, Moriah, means chosen of the Lord. It is called Adonai Yireh, the Lord sees. It is called the city of joy, the city of truth, the city of holiness, the city of David, and the city of God. It is the faithful city, the paragon of beauty, the city of justice, the rock of the plain, and the city of the dove. Not the goose. <laughs> the dove. Do you guys have any idea why there's a duck? <laughs> that really took the power out of this prepared statement that I had for you. I was preparing such a huge climatic event and it got quacked away. Well, I hope that, <laughs> hope that quacked you up. 
It is the rock of the plain and the city of the dove. It is the garden of God and the gateway of nations and the joy of the whole world. It is the city of the great king, our great king, Jesus Christ. We first read about this city in Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. It is the city in which the Lord is crucified and raised from the dead. And it is referred to often in the book of Revelation, both as an earthly city and as a model or a type of the heavenly city of New Jerusalem. God cares deeply about the city of Jerusalem. And therefore, so did Nehemiah. So, leadership begins with caring about the things God cares about. What does God care about? That could be a very long list. In some sense, because God is an infinite being, he cares to some degree or another about everything. But we know from the scriptures and from our own intuition that there are things that matter more to God than others. I thought long and hard about how I would present this idea so that we could have something to hang on to for the days and weeks to come. Here's what I came up with. And even though this is vastly oversimplified, I hope you find it helpful. In a certain sense, the longer something lasts, the more God cares about it. Let me give you a scripture or two that seem to support this idea. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 30. Jesus speaking. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for, that, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Our Lord makes special note of the very temporary nature of the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. And yet... God arrays them. How much more will God care for you who will live forever? From the moment you were conceived, because you were created in the image of God, God deemed in his infinite wisdom from that moment you would live for eternity. And so God cares 
for you. Following from this idea is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Christian, if you are going to choose to care about something, if you are going to invest a huge part of your life into something, be sure it is something God cares about. Something unseen. Something eternal. Nehemiah, as the second characteristic, was a man of passion. He didn't just feel bad for Jerusalem and its people. He began to weep and to mourn. God was going to use Nehemiah to do some great work in Jerusalem, but first, he did a great work in Nehemiah's heart. Former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, Alan Redpath, said this of leadership. There is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For whenever the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and tear down. Leaders must have a big vision. Through Nehemiah, God was going to correct a problem that had been around for 150 years. Through Nehemiah, God was going to do something that completely failed before. Believers must have a vision, a goal that is too big to accomplish on their own. We must be people of passion. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Prayer is essential to leadership. If your vision is so big that only God can accomplish it, then you obviously must pray. If prayer isn't absolutely necessary to accomplish your vision, your goal very well may be too small. Some of you may be thinking at this point, but I'm too old. My best days are behind me. It's hard to have a big vision in the twilight of my years. To you, I would like to say this. The longer I live, the more awed I am by the power of prayer. Here's a brief example. For a little over a year now, I've been praying that governmental corruption would be exposed and truth would be revealed. I've been shocked to see some of the things that have come to light in Canada and the U.S. during that time. I shouldn't be shocked because it's what I prayed for, <laughs> trusting that God would hear me. 
Seeing now that society in general is not outraged by corruption at the highest levels, I have begun to pray that God would remove corrupt politicians from office. That may leave us, of course, with only one or two people running the country, but I'll leave that to the Lord. I've said all that to say this to you that have said, I'm too old. I'm in the twilight of my years. I can't have big vision. Has the arm of the Lord been so shortened that he cannot reach your grandchild? Does it seem impossible that your child or grandchild embrace the truth in Christ and come to salvation? If it does, that's perfect. God delights in showing his strength when we have completely come to the end of ours. Pray for the seemingly impossible and wait on the Lord as his hand begins to move. This is a high and worthy vision. Nehemiah was a man of humility. It is from the words in his prayer that we just read that we learned that Nehemiah was a humble man. How many times did he refer to himself as your servant? This is a prayer of a man of action, not an armchair quarterback or a coffee shop politician. Nehemiah does not pray, God, please make it all better. Or, God, you need to get someone else moving on this problem. Instead, his prayer is, God, use me. I find it interesting that the greatest leader in the history of Israel, Moses, is a man whom the Bible calls the meekest man on earth. From a worldly perspective, we think of leaders as bold and ambitious. We don't think of them as meek. But Jesus knows what it takes to be a great leader. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's an interesting word, meek. I, it comes, we think meek as in cowering away and slightly afraid. Meek means someone that has a sword and knows how to use it, and therefore they don't have to draw it. Jesus said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The biblical concept of meekness or humility is that of having such strength of presence and character that without saying a word, you can humbly serve others without there being a power struggle. 
It is almost as though for the meek or humble Christian, the power of God is so evident in his or her life that there is no fear or shame in service. And the life of Christ is our perfect pattern. The Logos, who spoke the universe into existence, washes the feet of sinful men. That's power. Or maybe a better word is authority. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Finally, and if you're looking at your outline, you're wondering what on earth is this guy going to talk about? Nehemiah was a cupbearer. In the very last sentence of the chapter we just read, after Nehemiah prays that God would grant him favor in the eyes of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah finally lets us know who he is. He's the king's cupbearer. To our modern ears, this sounds like a lowly position. It sounds like a job anybody could do. But in the ancient world, being a cupbearer to the king was a very high position. The cupbearer had an audience with the king every day. Because of this, the cupbearer would often be an advisor of sorts to the highest authority in the land. Moreover, the cupbearer would often hear the plans of the king and his ministers and governors. And finally, of course, the cupbearer would bring the king something to drink at his request. Keeping all of this in mind, there were certain qualifications the cupbearer had to meet before he would be entrusted to this position. He must be wise in order to listen to the king and offer any words that may be requested. He must be absolutely beyond reproach when it came to his personal moral conduct. He must be able to keep the affairs of state discussed in the presence of the king in absolute confidence. And he must be willing to die in service of his sovereign. What? Die? That's right, die. The cupbearer was personally responsible for keeping the wine and possibly the food of the king free from any poison. Often he would prepare the wine right before the king's eyes by squeezing the grapes directly into the king's goblet. And he must taste the wine or other beverage in advance of the king to rule out the possibility of the king being poisoned. If he tasted the king's wine or food and fell over dead, he had successfully done his duty in protecting the king. The scripture gives us another story about a cupbearer. Way back in the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. In that story, Joseph is in prison when he learns that Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer have been imprisoned as well. They each have a dream, which Joseph interprets for them, and the prophetic dreams are perfectly fulfilled. The baker is executed, and the cupbearer is restored to his former position. In light of what we have just learned about cupbearers, the story in Genesis makes perfect sense if there was an attempt to poison Pharaoh, which the scripture doesn't explicitly say. If the food and wine taster for Pharaoh became violently ill or died, 
one of these two men would have been held responsible for at least negligence in allowing poison to be introduced to Pharaoh. Without knowing whether the poison was in the wine or the food, both men would have been imprisoned until the matter could be determined. Of course, God knew who the guilty and who the innocent party were, and he revealed it to Joseph through the interpretation of these dreams. So I've said all that, again, to say this. Being a cupbearer was an important position. Nehemiah was placed in a position of great influence, not due to his intelligence or good looks or ability at arms. He was placed in a position of great influence due to his high moral character and reputation of reliability, integrity, and honesty. I hope you young people heard that. Nehemiah was placed in a position of great influence, not due to his intelligence or good looks or ability at arms. He was placed in a position of great influence due to his high moral character, his reputation of reliability, integrity, and honesty. If a believer is to have any influence on the people around him, it starts with building a reputation of reliability, integrity, and honesty. Ravi Zacharias always maintained that the most difficult questions he ever faced as a defender of Christianity came from those who had had a bad experience with someone who called himself a Christian but didn't live up to the name. How do we, as believers, tell people that Jesus Christ, through his gospel, transforms lives and then live lives conformed to the world rather than transformed by the renewing of our minds? One of the reasons you may not be witnessing to others is that you're afraid that you may be called out on your own hypocrisy. That's right, I said it out loud. Taken to its logical conclusion, this means that somebody is going to spend eternity separated from God in hell because you, as a person that names the name of Christ, are living a morally compromised life. Today is the day to take this seriously. Because God's word has presented to us Nehemiah. I want to close with some scriptures to encourage us. Because I hope you're saying to yourself right now, I don't want to be that Christian that can't speak out because I know I'm living a morally compromised life. I hope you're saying that to yourself right now. Let's read some scriptures. I'm going to conclude with these that lay out precisely how the believer is to do this. Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. How is our mind renewed? This is the work of the Holy Spirit through his word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Titus verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were also once, listen to this description of what you were, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Finally, the words of Jesus as he was praying for you and me just before his crucifixion. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. You have cared for us even while we have not cared for you and you have drawn us to your son. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you because you first loved us and that you were willing to give yourself your life, that you were willing to go through horrendous torture and pain because of that tremendous love. And often for us, this is an intellectual exercise of believing what is true. But we want to express our love to you this morning because we have just learned through Nehemiah that you continue to sanctify us by your truth, that you continue to prepare us for an eternal city. Father, if there's sin in our lives, I pray that we would be open to recognizing it, confessing it, turning our backs on it, and running toward you, running toward the cross. I pray that each of us, as we go from this place, would be 
a leader to the degree that you have called us to be. Whether it's in prayer for our children and grandchildren, or whether for maybe some of the younger folks, it's in a classroom or a hallway, or in a career, that we would not be followers. That's too easy. That we would be leaders. Like Nehemiah, stand up and say, God, use me for something that seems impossible. And I pray that you would honor that prayer in the lives of each of us. That you would, like Nehemiah said, turn your ear and hear us. Be attentive to our prayer, we pray this morning. We pray that you would lift from our society this dark cloud of COVID. That you would bring truth somehow in some way to the leadership of our province and our nation, that your word would once again be the foundation of how we conduct ourselves as citizens in this country. We pray that you would throw down leaders that reject you and your truth and that you would lift up those that honor you. We thank you for this time together this morning in your word. We're so grateful that we have the eternal word of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hands that we can anchor our lives to and it will never be shaken. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.